Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to Changes. My name is Annie McManus. This podcast is a place where we discuss all things change. This week on Changes, we welcome journalist and author Sean Fay. Sean is a trans woman, probably most well known for writing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice. It's a book which presents the facts and offers solutions, uncovering the reality of what it means to be trans in a transphobic society. You've just outlined these things about homelessness. I could add to that poor medical care poor mental health support, the assumption that like our family, our nuclear birth family are going to be there for us no matter what and they're our support system for all of this stuff. That clearly doesn't work in a lot of people's cases, but particularly in the case of trans people for a variety of reasons with the stigma that attaches to trans people. I read Sean's book and spoke to her immediately after and it was such a privilege to get time with her and kind of learn her own personal lived experiences. In our conversation, Sean and I cover the idea of gender, politicised education, her own experiences of addiction in her family and her own life, her attitudes to love and much, much more. You may find some of the content upsetting, so do please check the show notes for details if you think you could be affected or triggered by what Sean is talking about. But right now, it gives me great pleasure to say, enter the podcast, Sean Bay. Let's start with then your relationship to the word change. How are you with that word and, and how are you with the actual verb aspect of that word you know are, are you a leaner inner to change do you avoid it well the word change I think now I associate it with growth but I also associate it with pain I think it's something that's that is neither a positive nor a negative it just is and I say that because I think for a long time I am someone that has experienced seismic changes perhaps some that a lot of the world would consider quite dramatic um, f- um, for me, change used to be something I was actually very scared of for that reason. And I think I'm, I've come to accept that my instincts are to be a control freak. And so change can be very unsettling. And actually, a lot of the angst that I've experienced has been from trying to control change. And I've mm. gotten a lot happier when I've more consciously, I, I'm not perfect at it, but accept that change is going to happen <laughs> sometimes, whether you like it or not, and to sort of yeah. um, see it as it is. And as I say, that can also involve pain as well as growth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've written a book, The Transgender Issue and Argument for Justice, which it is a challenge of, of kind of the dominant systems around us, but also essentially maybe a call to change. Like it's mm. kind of addressing how things could be different for not just the trans community, but for like all marginalised communities, well, society at large. To be clear, the title is not an affirmation of the idea that trans people's lives are a matter of public discourse, correct? 
Yes, that's correct. There are some people who have apparently seen the book and probably are more sort of aligned with my views, but because yeah. they perhaps don't have any context, they assume it's um, a very different kind of book yeah. and get quite angry about it until someone says, no, no, yeah. <laughs> she's a trans woman. <laughs> no, it's a, tro- it's a Trojan horse is what I would describe it as. as um, it was intended to be a mass market book. It's called The Transgender Issue. That is a phrase. And it's so funny now that like I have obviously this community of readers and people sort of irately will point out to me like, look, they've said they've used this again. It's yeah. come up a lot in the news. And it was a phrase that back in 2018, it was there from the beginning. And I, I heard it all the time. And I just thought, what does this, what, when people say this, because it, it's, it's my life is what they yeah. mean at the most fundamental level. Um, and I thought, what do people mean? They don't mean what I think the issues facing me or trans people more generally are. So let's maybe have that conversation as a way into this larger project of the book. There's a quote where it says, it turns out when the media want to talk about trans issues, it means they want to talk about their issues with us, not the issues facing us. Have you ever been in a direct experience of that? Oh, yes. <laughs> Hundreds of times. Um, I would say, you know, now I think what a lot of people may not realise is that, you know, and I've been promoting this book for a year. It came out September 2021. Uh, I say no to about 70% of the media requests I get. What I actually do, which is <laughs> a compliment yeah. to changes, is is a very small portion. The reason being is that I would say a lot of the ways in which uh, as a public facing trans person, you're asked or invited to engage with the media is a trap. And um, the reason that I have arrived at this point of being very confident in saying no and being able to see the danger, of course, is because I've walked headlong into it in the past and Mm. uh, to my my huge regret. Um, And yeah, and I think what that looks like for people that might not be familiar with that is, it can be anything from a very nice researcher or producer on a news programme, coaxing you on, sounding like they understand, sounding like they want to kind of get the truth out. Yeah. And uh, and then you arrive and there's perhaps a person that doesn't even agree that you are who you say you are, who sat across from you in the green room and they want you to go out and argue with them. It can be sneaky things like, um, a lot of places won't want to interview me. They would rather that I wrote wrote something for them that they could then edit. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these subtle, yeah, attempts to impose a kind of narrative that they mm. want on mm. on what I'm actually trying to say, yeah. And do you think there's a fear there as well from because debate around trans people is so fucking fiery, mm. like and like incendiary? Do you think there's a fear from people where they're like, oh god, we don't want to like piss people off? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I have amazingly considering you know my the book was Sunday Times bestseller. It's probably the the biggest selling book on this topic in Britain ever. Which is amazing. I, like, congratulations <laughs> for that, thanks. by the way. And that I'm should not, be said. Uh, thank you. And I'm not saying that just to brag, but I'm saying that for the status of that kind of book. You know, I, I have not done any of the main radio stations. None of the broadsheets interviewed me. And I think that is a little unusual. And yeah. I know, we know that, you know, without naming names, you know, I had a publicist like, like every author does. And and there were some people who were at least, and I, I appreciate the honesty, where they will just say, we consider this topic to be like this very toxic, heated discussion. So our producers have decided no one from either side, which 
I can sort of understand if you want a quiet life, but it is maddening. I'm on to talk about the oppression that we know or the evidence suggests trans people face. And yeah. to me, I do not see myself as on a side. Yes, I see, except, it's not political you know. <laughs> in that way. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. And, and so it's, it's this odd thing where it's like, well, we don't, the, the, the fairest thing to do is to not have anyone. Um, and that's a very peculiar state of affairs when you have an author who is a member of a minority group who is coming on to talk about that minority group. I'm very happy not to talk about, I don't know, the discussion in feminism around it or people on the other side. I don't necessarily want to use up the airtime talking about those people. I want to talk about the things in my book. And so it's, it, yeah, it's very odd how you're positioned by some people yeah. as on one side. At the same time, I suppose to outsiders who have no connection to this, mm. if you're on certain parts of social media, it does look very fiery. It does look like the, you know, it has, it's become one of the most polarized topics. And I, and at the same time, while I, I think that's, it's misguided to frame trans people as like on one side of this, I think we all live in a time where we're very wary of saying something wrong. Mm. And so it's easier sometimes to say nothing and, and I suppose people don't really understand where all the passion and anger is coming from. Um, and I think it's often coming from a place of frustration and a place of pain. And so mm. one of the things I try and do in the book is guide people through, you know, this isn't just oh, a spat on Twitter you've seen between like, you know, this famous person and trans people in, you know, in their replies. This is about something that's been going on with the media discussion about trans people for well, since the 1950s, actually. <laughs> yeah. And to go on a kind of much deeper level, I guess, why do you think people are scared of kind of taking on this whole topic of just gender in general? It feels to me like people are scared to rock the boat of what their foundations of their life are. So if someone comes along challenging the system of gender, suddenly you have to look at yourself and you have to ask questions about yourself and your own existence that maybe you don't want to. Is that fair? I think that is fair, yes. I think you know, gender is just so deeply ingrained. I mean, you know, this idea that it's just a frivolous thing and that it's something... I mean, like, there is a discussion about... When, you know, the trouble is, one, the word gender, right, is the way we use it can be so multifaceted. We can talk about what your hair and makeup looks like. Yeah. That's gender. But I would say something like domestic abuse, that's gender too. So this huge topic, you know, has one word to describe it. And I think when we talk about gender, we, yeah, we're talking about something that goes to the very core of how we categorise and understand the world. It's the first thing someone will find out about a person when that person's, you know, in their uterus, when that person is born. It's the first mm. thing we indicate in our language with, you know, everyone talks about pronouns, but pronouns are there to indicate someone's gender to us before we've even seen anything about them. Sure. And so and so that, that that shapes our reality. It's very powerful. And I think whilst people know that this categorization system has violence within it, it it determines who is safe sometimes in some context from violence and who isn't, who who has the degree of freedom, who isn't, who is judged by their appearance, who isn't, who um, who gets to do what. We all know that this is like uh, a horrible system <laughs> that curbs almost everyone's individuality, even, even you know, men's who are supposed to benefit from it and, and, and yeah. may benefit from it. 
there's a real fear there about letting that go or or a kind of belief that like, yes, it's, I think sometimes, yes, it's horrible, but what are you saying that there might be other ways to do it? And I, and I think that goes as much for, I think, I think men who can feel, especially patriarchal sexist Mm. men, obviously, you know, far right are obsessed with trans people at the moment across the world from Hungary to the US, you know, the far Mm. right cannot stop obsessing about this group. But similarly for women too, I think um, even women that are engaged with the idea that women might be subordinated in in the current system is, I think sometimes I have experienced a defensiveness and that's not just about, you know, whether you want to call it gender critical feminism. I remember once being in a bar in Dublin Mm. and a woman said something to me. She asked me an intrusive question about my own transition. I was there visiting a friend and she's a little bit drunk. (laughs) She asked me an intrusive question and I said very politely, I don't want to answer that. Yeah. And she got so defensive and said, I, ju- I pushed out three kids out my vagina. I know what a woman is. And, and obviously she was wow. drunk and all the rest of it. But, you know, and that wasn't grounded in some sort of feminist theory. It was a defensiveness about, mm. you know, lots of things going on there about uh, motherhood, about where being, you know, what being a woman means, what being a real woman means clearly some maybe some frustration about how maybe motherhood and childbirth aren't recognized yeah but then this projection onto me like I've just sort of waltzed in very easily and said you know well I'm a woman um same as you and and you know there's been no difficulty in that whatsoever so incredibly presumptuous in many ways and and yeah and while that's not necessarily a nice comment uh to hear and I'm not saying that you know I can be completely zen about all those comments I think if you reflect, it's quite easy to see some of the impulses that are going on there. Let's talk about some of the things that we learn from your book. It's so important to to read the book. You know, already I, I've just learned so much from it. And I know that your book wasn't aimed particularly towards trans people, more people who aren't trans and who don't understand the culture and the community and all of that, uh, but also how it's oppressed. So trans people, this could have changed as well, Sean, so please correct me, trans people, not 0.6% of the population. 45% of trans people have tried to kill themselves. One in four trans people have experienced homelessness. Huge, huge percentage. One in four trans people experienced abuse at the hands of a partner in the past year. That was 2020, 2021. There's no group that disagree with each other more than trans people. I heard you say that on the Channel 4 podcast, which I was really interested in. And the oppression of trans people is specifically rooted in capitalism. Now, can you start by elaborating on that, please? Well, because, right, you've just you've just outlined these things about um, homelessness uh, I could add to that poor medical care, sure. poor mental health support. The assumption that like our family, our nuclear birth family are going to be there for us no matter what and they're our support system for all of this stuff. That clearly doesn't work in a lot of people's cases, but particularly in the case of trans people for a variety of reasons with the stigma that attaches to trans people at the moment, unfortunately. And so the capitalist system, which I think we're all starting to see, you know, the cost of living crisis and and this decline in in any kind of social safety net that we've seen consistently over many decades in in this country, the UK now, that leaves people vulnerable. And so for trans people, I think it's important that it's 
the reason that I say it's rooted in capitalism is because I think people can sometimes think, oh, it's rooted in the fact that maybe trans people are a little bit unstable because they've been pathologized as such, as mentally ill for so long, or that it's just about, um, I don't know, the fact that they're sort of special and weird and different and, uh, and misunderstood. Yeah. And actually understanding me or any trans person it's great, but that's not going to actually provide any kind of yeah escape from the danger uh, and systemic discrimination that I or other trans people may have experienced. So that so there's that question too, and then the and then the more theoretical side, I guess, about about capitalism and and trans people. Actually, what would benefit most trans people's lives now are things like a better housing policy, not waiting six weeks for universal credit when you've been kicked out by family at a young age and you have just gotten a cycle of homelessness. The fact that like, you know, a lot of people think we get all these free surgeries on the NHS. Effectively, trans healthcare in the UK is now privatised because the waiting lists are years and years and years and years. It's just not, yeah. it's not um, realistic to, to wait. And that's because of wider problems in the NHS mm. um, and, and and the structure of trans healthcare. So so there's so there's those things, but also the reason why um, capitalism requires it is because actually capitalism really relies on this, the nuclear family, the idea of heteronormativity, the idea mm. that there is men's work and there is women's work. And I know a lot of people think, well, that's not really the case anymore. Women go out to work, but actually, if we look look in the pandemic, wasn't it? We found out that like. Yeah. Especially when you couldn't have like uh, domestic cleaners or whatever in your home, like women ended up doing the majority of like unpaid work. Women still do the majority of unpaid so depressing. work. Yeah, yeah. Regardless, and when and when you take away a lot of middle class women outsource it to to a to a working class woman. Um, but when yeah we when we saw in the pandemic where they couldn't do that like it would be women would go on Zoom to work and do all the childcare and do all the housework and then yeah. you know and there was there was evidence for this it's not just me opining and a lot of men would just go on do Zoom and think that they'd done their work yeah and and the system of capitalism has always required that because it's built you know in the industrial revolution on the idea of nuclear family needing to reproduce that and then a lot of unpaid labor needing to be done by women why is that relevant to trans people well it's a system of mm. division where it's always in the interests really of, of capitalism to understand who's a man who's a woman and of course to have people that will always be unemployed that's often disabled people and people of color would be the largest groups i could think of but trans people have huge problems in the employment market too just to kind of break that down the reason why it benefits capitalism to have people unemployed oh it's because the capital the capitalist system needs this reservoir of unemployed people um so that current workers if you know are, are, pre are precarious and they could be replaced so they have to accept worse conditions because if everyone was employed, we could all, you know, demand higher and higher pay. So that's a bit theoretical, but I know you also have had on this podcast, uh, my friend Travis Alabanza. And I think we love Travis. they explain, here's just a really classic example, particularly about some trans people like, like them who are gender non-conforming, is just getting a job. You're not meeting the uniform policy. You don't look presentable to the public. People are worried that, you know, particularly if you're gender non-conforming, they're worried about the public image of the company. I have to say, you know, I, I conform pretty much to gender now. People won't be able to see me, but I, I present in a very sort of kind of conventional way. But yeah, I mean, early in my transition, when I did not, I remember working as a 
theatre usher during a run of Mamma Mia. Um, I can never <laughs> listen as much as I love ABBA. Voulez-vous is quite quite triggering now. Is it triggering? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, I was like selling ice creams and all that stuff. But I was a visibly trans person. And let's, I'm just going to say that that, <laughs> even with the probably quite cosmopolitan audiences of Mamma Mia, that was not an easy ride. And I only did it for six weeks. And, and, and so I'm not going to pretend like I had this hugely hard experience. Mm. But um, yeah, I got a taste of what a customer service role in person is like as a gender non-conforming person. And yeah, it was it was not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Sean, can we talk about Section 28 as well quickly? Again, this was something that I just wasn't really aware enough of. And your book helped me, I guess I was 10 and in Dublin, so it mm. didn't affect me whatsoever. But a legislation that bans schools from promoting um, the teaching of any sort of acceptability of homosexuality in families in the system. Maggie Thatcher was obviously in government at the time. Looking back, how were you affected? Yeah, so the interesting thing sometimes I think about Section 28, it came into force in 1988. Often the story has been told by adults who were campaigning against it. There were lesbian campaigners who famously abseiled into the House of Lords, which is very iconic. And, you very know, um, the, the charity Stonewall was founded by... Um, you know, some some of them household names like uh, Sarian McKellen, right? And and that was yeah. to campaign against Section 28. What what has sometimes been lost is that those people were campaigning against it and witnessing this horror as adult comp- campaigners. But it was actually people like me who w- I was born two months before Section 28 came into force in 1988. And it lasted in England until 2003 when I was 15, 16. So actually, it is people my age, and I am 34, not very old, who were affected by it because we were schooled in an environment in which it was actually unlawful to discuss homosexuality, and by that, that was all LGBT identities, as a positive thing, as a pretended family relationship. That means not only do schools do not have LGBT inclusive sex education or whatever that we might think of today, it meant that um, gay teachers wouldn't be able to talk about being gay, realistically, and this was my experience. It meant that uh, a culture of homophobia could flourish in schools and teachers were so afraid to say anything about it or indeed were homophobic themselves yeah. so that no one challenged it. There was a culture of silence about it and homophobic bullying you know, just existed and thrived in that. Mm. I got a scholarship to um, an all boys public school, English public school, minor public school. Actually, being an, an independent school, it wasn't governed by Section Twenty Eight, but <laughs> needless to say, they implemented it anyway. A lot of my, yeah. a lot of my uh, teachers were former military men, um, and as you can imagine, for someone like me, that was horrendous. The minute I arrived <laughs> at, at secondary school, aged eleven, the day. I arrived, I was called a faggot. And that lasted for um, pretty much a lot of my time there, at least until I was 16. It was about the way I wore my mannerisms. It was constant humiliation and not just name calling, but sexual humiliation too. Um, Mm. The presumption that I'm sex mad, all of those things. And yeah, there was nowhere to go with that. And there was a culture of silence around it. And teachers said homophobic things. I used to play that down 10 years ago, if I was having this conversation, I would have played that down because I would have not wanted to say I was affected by it. But of course, 
and this is just about homosexuality, let alone trans people, right, is that all I knew is I was clearly being perceived as a feminine kid. I also knew that I liked boys and I also knew, especially once my puberty started, something was really, really wrong and I didn't like what was happening to my body. And I guess all I can describe that as is a feeling of existential isolation because being a, a child, you believe that you're the only person that feels that way. And then what the you know, section 28 and that sort of environment for schooling does is reinforce that because no one's there to tell you this is safe, this is normal, this is yeah. this is yeah. healthy, you can have a happy life. You pick up things from TV and the homophobia of the TV of TV and mainstream TV, I think, was only starting to change in the 2000s. All you receive every single day is a negative message about who and what you are. And of course, um, different people that manifest, how well, the damage that does manifests in different yeah. ways. For me, I was someone that disassociated. So I would just think, well, I'm here. I threw myself into my academic work and I would switch off. So I just learned to compartmentalize what was being said to me. But I, had, I, I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. There were other boys at school who I sort of had like a friendly bond with who kind of like they did grow up to be gay like right. no one would be like oh yeah. yeah no are you I am as well no it was like the shame you're drenched in shame and of course like when for example I have a really close relationship with my mother but did I tell her when people were making these comments to me no because you know the generation she is too so I didn't know what reception I was going to get there I didn't have a counsellor necessarily to talk that through with there was no like LGBT club there was no positive representation on TV and again we're just talking about am I maybe gay let alone yeah is there something deeper going on here with the fact that I'm not supposed to be turning into a man which is what I felt that's how I yeah. would have felt at the time So you're getting these negative messages from from everyone around you, but how was your home life? Like, did these negative messages, were they a surprise to you when you came to school? Like, had you ever felt anything like that before? Um, I had felt things like that before. I mean, my, so my home life growing up before, yeah, before I started secondary school uh, was it was kind of a mixed bag because... I was born into many ways a loving home. So I, uh, I'm from a you know, family, well, my mother's side family of Irish descent. And I was, like, my Irish grandmother was like, like many Irish grandmothers, and she was one of 13 children, um, had favourites because their families are so big. They're just shameless about having favourites. And I was named after, and still am, named after my, uh, my grandfather who died the year before. So I bore his name. And I think my grandmother was, like, my birth lifted her out of that grief and she lived across the street from us. So I had a very close relationship with her and with my mother, quite like a matriarchal environment. However, my father was an alcoholic, um, a very chaotic one. He was in and out of our lives pretty much until he disappeared altogether when I was 10. I never saw him again um, after my parents' divorce. And he was in and out of uh, rehab a lot. Uh, he would disappear for weeks on end with nothing. I would come home from school and ask, like, you know, is, is daddy home today? Sometimes it would be yes, sometimes it would be no. And um, I think my father resented me from the moment I was born because he, I, feel, I think, felt threatened because... He had an emotionally stunted uh, range of human experience because of, of his illness. I think he really thought that I, as the eldest child, and of course, you know, at that time, eldest son, um, was stealing 
my mother mm. and grandmother because my grandmother my maternal grandmother loved him um his affections and I think I felt that resentment from him so I had this like odd extremes where I, I think I did have a happy childhood because I, I had enough um security enough from my mother and my grandmother until she died when I was seven but I also had a parent who I felt palpable resentment from who obviously could be nasty at times and drink and who ultimately disappeared and um, chose what I felt chose uh, alcohol over me and so that <laughs> ticking time bomb was there really from you know and then he 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 kind of vanished around the time I went to or boys school and then I enter this new phase of having to manage yeah the shame there and of course there's a lot of shame involved with having being in an alcoholic home when you're younger too like knowing that you can't tell, you know, the secrets that you have to keep about where your dad is and stuff like that. So, so I learned, so there was an element of secrecy and shame mm. running through my life from quite a young age. But also fear, no, when you have someone like that in your life who's that unpredictable, there, is there a kind of constant sense of underlying kind of fear of not knowing what the mood will be, whether they will be in? Yeah, I think there was. And, um, and again, I would have told you, uh, perhaps at an earlier point in my adult life, I'd have told you, no, 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 I wasn't affected because what, uh, my reaction to that was not to act out as some children would, but to almost, I want to say act in, to... Um, yeah, to, to kind of internalise. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I, and so what I learned to do was to, well, as I say, I think when I learned what the word disassociation was, uh, you know, was an adult, um, and quite literally, sometimes I would, I would look at, my family home growing up and I would sometimes have this odd thing where I would think is this a dream and I think what I learned to do was to this is too overwhelming so I'm going to park this and, and compartmentalize it and it was an effective tactic from for, for dealing with that unpredictability and it lent itself yeah to a way to, to get out fear to manage fear if something I couldn't control in one area is to fix it in another. So one thing about, despite my school life being hard, is that sure. I performed like exceedingly, <laughs> sound like I'm humble bragging, but exceedingly well academically. Yeah. And actually, you know, that was good. Obviously it served me well in terms of the career I've got to have and everything. But it's um, it's a bit of a red herring for people around you because if you were, you know, acting out and, drinking and taking drugs as a, as a young teenager, then people would say there's something wrong. Yeah, to but when it's, help. Yeah, yeah, but when it's like, you're just coming home saying, oh, I'm fine, straight A's. I got A's. another A today. Yeah, yeah, model, and then the parents yeah. evening, model student. Yeah. Uh, and I got very into Catholicism. I clung to that when I was about 13 or 14, which is because I think I needed, I was looking for some kind of anchor. And, and so I became religious, but it was weird. And I say it's weird because I became like a bit OCD about it because obviously I realized I was one, attracted to boys and was so say a boy. And two, as my puberty began, things like the growth of facial hair, bodily changes, I my reaction to them was not normal. It was like, what is happening to me? Yeah. Um, my mother bought me a razor once for my like, at Christmas as like a stocking filler when I was about 14. And I was horrified. I was so upset. Um, and <laughs> that was an escape route too. Was uh, There was a time, a real time when I was about 15 or 16 where I was absolutely sure I was going to become a Benedictine monk. It's like, well, I, I will hide, run away and hide from this world yeah, because yeah. 
there's no place for me in it and I don't like what's happening. And of course, I think probably a lot of LGBT people have hidden in the in the Catholic Church, have hidden for many centuries. Yes, yes um, I think so. <laughs> and, and so obviously that was an, that was an idea at one point mm-hmm. too. So whilst everything sort of looked like model teenager, in many ways, I really was already quite lost um, yeah. by the time I was 15, 16. looking back to that time in your life and before what would you say was would be the biggest kind of most impactful change that happened to you in that time well yeah I thought about this and there's there's a lot there but I actually think I I think I think probably the death of my grandmother when I was seven it was my first experience of death and because she was a person that I was so close to that signaled a change you know that when you look back at your childhood and obviously it was the loss of that relationship, but you know when yeah. you sometimes pot your child and you're like, nothing was the same after that. My mother was pregnant when my grandmother, her mother died. And so my sister, who was the, the final of the three of us, was born a few months later. And pretty much from the minute my sister was born, my parents' marriage, in essence, was over. You right. know, my mother had tried everything. My father never really lived with us again. You know, it was, you know, the the death of a grandparent I was very close to, the arrival of, you know, a new sibling and pretty much the end of my parents' marriage. And I think that, you know, that could all sound like very gloomy, but it just, it just was a seismic shift in, yeah. you know, in my, in my childhood. I don't know whether or not it had a huge impact, but I've, I've done a lot of thinking about it in adulthood through therapy, yeah. through, um, you know, other work I've had to do on myself is about, you know, not, not being maudlin about the past, but trying to understand why I work the way I do, why I operate right. the way I do. Yeah. After years of pretending that it didn't, it didn't have any relevance to who I was. Yeah. Let's talk about the next phase then. You went to Oxford, mm-hmm. studied English literature, then you went to London, you became a lawyer, mm-hmm. after which you went through some very big changes again. But what happened there? Can you talk us through that part of your life? Yeah, so I, um, I came out at Oxford as gay. In fact, I was outed as gay by a friend, someone that I thought was a friend, to my entire family at dinner. Oh my um, god! Which was a huge betrayal of my trust. Is... And um, was the that reason... shrouded in good intention? Were they like, uh, "Oh, I was just trying to"? I don't. Yeah, maybe good right. intention. Maybe I know. I mean, you know, I forgive all sometimes now when I think about young people and about how chaotic they can be. Because as we'll probably get into, I have a lot to be forgiven for too. But um, yeah, this friend maybe thought they were helping, but it actually, after years of finally getting to a point where I could even tiptoe into, yes, I'm, I'm different in some way, gay sure. was the stand-in. Mm even though I knew fully that it wasn't the whole story. Um, so I, I, yeah, I was outed and, and that was very difficult. I had, from pretty much the beginning, quite toxic relationships when I, when I had them and I didn't know why that I was, I was, thought I was attracted to exciting people, but suddenly it would take on very intense dynamics always. Right. Yeah, and so I sort of plodded along with this gay identity yeah, Oxford, I started wearing makeup, I would shop, I wouldn't wear dresses, but I would shop from the women's section of that was 2006, 2007, it was new rave, good thing to hide in. I actually remember seeing you, DJ, at the Carling Academy in Oxford, I can remember going to see you, <laughs> wow. it was about that time when I first, and um, 
And yeah, mm-hmm. I, I could sort of start playing with my identity. And, um, and yeah, and in many ways, my life opened up. Like, you know, this, I met new people, as many we do when we go to university, and then to London, to the gay scene and the nights out. What also happened, though, I should say, is I didn't, because of my father's history, I didn't drink uh, until I was 18 because I was wary of it. And then mm-hmm. I went away to university and I started drinking in my freshest week. Um, and lo and behold, <laughs> I started to do have a problematic relationship with drinking looking back. But yeah. it didn't feel like a problem at the time. It actually felt, you know, like many people who are in recovery, as I am now, say it felt like a solution. Because okay. I had gone from being this shy, nerdy, bookish, faggy kid at this all boys school who didn't drink and was you know considered a bit weird bit, you know had my religious face to suddenly being what I felt in the head in my head at this time false eyelashes at 2 p.m in the day wearing heels you know going to tutorials and think makeup you know in this sparkly like mac pigment makeup being what I thought was this fabulous creature and I, and I didn't really know drag wasn't as big as it was then that I really was you know I felt like the only one there but but I was prized for it and of course that goes hand in hand with the nightlife and the drink and, you know, not so long after the drugs. Mm. And, um, and that, you know, at some point that became part of my, I thought, oh, this is who I'm supposed to be. Yeah. I'm supposed to be the person with like the kind of like knowing everyone air kisses in the, in the smoking area and, you know, um, I don't know, drugs in the drugs in the thigh high boot, you know, all of that stuff. Mm. It was it, it went hand in hand and continued to for a very, very long time, long past when it stopped being fun. And um and so yeah, and but that came with a dark side quite quickly and combined with my unresolved gender problems. Unfortunately, if you take someone that like the cost of my drinking and drug use was always uh depression. Uh, experiences of feeling of self-harm and of course combined with that was a feeling of being trapped in my gender dysphoria and so really it was whilst I said all this great stuff with my identity came from that the drink and the Mm. drugs and the partying it was also like pouring petrol on a barbecue (laughs) in terms of the smoldering problems that were there from my childhood from from with my gender and of course that uh blew up (laughs) badly by my mid-20s and yeah I'd I'd taken on this job, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, beca- I'd trained as a lawyer because of the 2008 crash and I was still, you know, one of my addictions, I guess, I could say, was prestige and doing that, the right thing, mm. doing the good mm. thing, the middle class thing, because I, I didn't come from a money background. I had been very lucky to access these educational opportunities from the age of 11 when I got this scholarship and single mother, lone parent family, yeah. you, know, pro- you know, proving that I'm, you know, to myself, uh, really, I thought it was other people but myself that, you know, I'm worthy. And so lawyer is a prestigious career. But of course, you know, if you, when you actually finish law school and you get to the lawyer's office, if 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 you're saying you're a man, they want you in a suit with like short back and sides <laughs> still. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that extremely um, confining in a way that I sensed was abnormal. And so, yeah, I, I would work very hard and then I would be out three, four nights in the week and at yeah. the weekend too. And of course that all caught up with me. And so that's the complete implosion I had. Um, and I qualified just as a lawyer yeah. and then said I quit. And then I said, my coming out as trans as well was greatly assisted by alcohol and drugs. I yeah. first said it, hi, 
I first came out on Facebook, I drank to blackout, posted this amazing that I could string a sentence together thing about how I was trans to everyone, hadn't told my mum, friends, close friends, right. and posted it 2am, I pass out from this blackout, I wake up, I haven't even remembered I've done it. That's where I was at. Right, so I quit this job as a lawyer, moved back in with my mum for what I thought was a bit, turned out to be like a few years, and um, and came out as trans. So here I am, sat as this alcoholic and drug addict, just newly out as trans, no job, <laughs> and having to live with my mother all in the space of two weeks. I mean, it, wow. it's insane and clinically depressed as well. <laughs> Gosh, it's, I, it sounds so extreme. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What would you say is the biggest change you've gone through in your adulthood now then? It's interesting because, right, as a trans person, yeah. I should say transitioning from a man to a woman. That's yeah. the biggest change. <laughs> but it isn't. I would say, you know, getting sober, my recovery from yeah. from my addiction is. The reason being is because my addiction was there. It was my it was my scaffolding to get me through all of this stuff. I you know, I, I joke sometimes. I have body parts that have, have been with me less time than my addiction <laughs> and um you know it was for over a decade good bad ugly it was what, always what I could turn to I tried I tried to stop um I had several attempts before I finally got sober yeah uh and I tried to stop without help um a couple of times and I and I remember one time I tried to stop without help and I didn't realize until I you know understood more about recovery and met people that had achieved long-term recovery was that I felt worse. Everyone else was like, oh, it's good you stopped drinking. It didn't seem to be doing well for you because of the blackouts, because of the violent situations I was putting myself in. You know, blacking out, not knowing who I was with, mixing with lower and lower company, all the cliched stuff yeah. that happens yeah. to drug and alcohol addicts. And I thought, okay, but why do I feel worse? And is this like, is it how soon after did you start feeling worse? Was Do you mean like immediately or was this like months Oh, after? months, 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 right. months. Right, okay. So this is beyond withdrawal. This yeah, is all of that. Yeah, it's beyond yeah, withdrawal. Yeah. It's, I felt like, and I used to say, one, I wanted everyone to congratulate me on the fact that I hadn't had a drink that day. Like, I'm furious when they didn't. But also, <laughs> I used to say things like, I feel like someone's died. I've lost my best friend. I know I was in mourning because that was, you know, the one thing 
that I could rely on. I later listened to, there's a Florence and the Machine song, Hunger, and I know Florence sings, I thought love was in the drugs, but the more I took, the more they took away and I could never get enough. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, wow. oh my God, that's me. Um, mm. Because that's what it felt like, is that that was a consistent to me, you know, that obviously it was all fake, it was chemical, but to me it, it was the crutch. So, so when I finally got sober, and since then, building a life where I actually have to find real connection, where I have to have a real sense of myself. Yeah. That, and this is where I, I've had to do all this work back about why do I think the way I do? Because when I, when I look back now, I realise, I described to you, right, like walking through the corridors of school and having people taunt me, as you mentioned, like with my, you know, perhaps with my father being a chaotic mm. person and that uncertainty mm. is you know, without, without a drink or a drug inside me, you know, and, and without, you know, like some kind of, you know, inner spiritual life and connection with other people who have experienced the same, I, I'm completely insane. Why? Because I'm hypervigilant, because I'm always looking for danger around the corner. Sure. I can convince, it's a coping mechanism that's gone wrong. These things were, at one point in my life, were an accurate reflection. My brain responded to the, to, you have to keep yourself safe. When I first transitioned, walking down, and I really would like people to get this, when you walk down the street as a visibly trans person. You are in danger. You are in danger. You are in danger. I was walking down the street once, early in my transition, talking to a friend, also a trans person. And we were talking and someone, this man grabbed me by the throat and spat in my eyes. Oh my God. Without a word. And, and and, And the main thing I thought when that happened was humiliation not that it happened that, that because my friends saw it because so conditioned was i to believe that is what happens to someone like me but you what i surprised. want yeah but what i what was more mortifying was that my coping mechanism for something like that is to pretend it didn't happen at all and you can't do that when your friends there shocked and asking if you're okay Got so it. this is this is the way my mind has been coached by society to work and using, continuing that example, what did I do right after that happened? I drank and I took drugs sure. and suddenly it didn't matter anymore. So, mm. so these things go hand in hand. And what I have to recognize now, you know, in living a life without that and a much better life, of course, of course, yes. because I'm not, well, one, it's a life that's, you know, going to continue for, for a decent period of time, which was not what was going to happen Um by the time I stopped. Yeah. Um, but I think it is that I have to recognize, oh, the way my brain thinks isn't always good for me. It mm-hmm. was good for me at one time, but now now, I, now, sometimes these things don't serve me. And sometimes I need to check in with another person. And sometimes I need to think, you can't control the universe just because it's keeping yourself safe. Um, you you can't always, you know, and that, and that goes for, um, you know, even small things. I, I see more and more on Instagram now about people pleasing and they make it sound like, yeah. you know, people pleasing and oh, it's this, you're a put upon overly nice person. No, people pleasing, let's go twisted, is manipulation as well. And I mm. used to be, when I was younger mm. and I talked about being on a scene, I used to be so manipulative, you know, because I would give people whatever they wanted me to be. And on a, like stuff like the gay scene, I think a lot of LGBT people will relate to this, is you you come out and then you we all came out from this section 28. And everyone's had this internalised homophobia, transphobia, whatever. 
And then suddenly you're on this scene, you're maybe like, you know, trying to go out, trying to, you know, show off, trying to show that you're somebody, trying to have sex, all these things. And you're complete pricks to each other. And you're all wearing a mask because you do, not all, but many of us are wearing masks because we have not dealt with the trauma, frankly, we've experienced growing up. And I would change. I would change how I dressed. I would change how I looked for different friends. I would... Mm. Mm. I would I would be so afraid if like someone said if you listen to this band or whatever I would lie instantly without thinking yeah. you know yeah yeah when when you sort of like get older and you sober up in my case you are left with still with these impulses and you're like where does okay so it's not just about not drinking it's about everything that went behind everything that. underneath it yeah mm. yeah wow well well done well done mm. to you for getting through that and for being sober I'm so impressed when people can do that it's so hard mm. um so congrats to you. No, thank you. Um, Sean, I would like to ask you the the final change question, if that's okay. As yeah. in, what, what change would you still like to see? And that can be for your own life or for the world around you uh, moving forwards. Read my book if you if you want to see the change in the world. I'm going to talk about me. <laughs> good, 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 good. Uh, the final change I would I would like to see right is it's something I'm working out at this stage in my life now is a little bit of resolution or a less of a reliance on my relationship to men romantically defining who I am. And I think I'm you know I'm I think I'm in that and I think I am in a process of change. But it's something that I have been seeking out to change. Why? Well. It really relates to everything else we said is that and I, my next book after the transgender issue, which I'm writing at the moment, is about love. And that seems like a gear change. But to me, all of these things seem about like fear of not being loved, unlovable, fear of abandonment, everything we've talked about. And I think for trans, well, for women generally, but for trans women, especially those of us who date men, I've seen it again and again, is that we come out, we transition and we turn on TV. There's no trans woman in happy, fulfilling relationships. Sometimes you see a trans woman and she's a sex worker. You see trans women in porn, frankly, you know, and that's not to do down sex workers, but that is, that's your representation of what Mm. men, cis men and trans women, how they'll meet. And so I think that creates a state of despondency but also reliance then on many men and when when I talk about you know I I haven't experienced serious domestic violence from a partner so I won't I wouldn't want any ambiguity about that however I have experienced pretty unpleasant dynamics with men that I've dated in the past experienced really intolerable things you know the things that like people's you know men I've dated friends would say about me like are you dating that tranny and I would be like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. How awful for your friend to say that about me. I mean, I literally, that's what I would do. Only meeting men after like after 11 in places that I knew that they'd pick because they didn't want to be seen with a, trans, a visibly trans woman. All of this stuff. Then, you know, basically just before the pandemic started in early 2020, I had the most sort of significant relationship of my post-transition life. And I really, really loved that person. And uh, he loved me as well. And... That's great. I I think I thought that was going to change my life. All the self-acceptance was going to come and everything. And then suddenly, about a year into the relationship, we had a conversation. I realized he wants children. It's a big part of what he's always envisioned for his future. And not only can I obviously not bear children, but I also, um, I mean, 
you know, physically rather than like, can't yeah. stand kids. Um, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> Just but, yeah, um, but um, I, yeah, I cannot carry a child, but also I don't want children. And I, and I, and I'd made that decision a long time ago. And so this, I had this thing where I was in love with someone and they were in love with me and realizing, mm. oh, this relationship has to end. And this was a new problem that was not, well, was not really connected to stigma about me being trans, but just like one of the fucking things yeah. that happens with compatibility. Yeah. And yeah, I was devastated. That is like, you know, a breakup when you're still in love with someone is devastating. I'm sure lots of people can relate to that. But what I also realized is not only did that relationship die, but also a lot of very arguably codependent hopes about me and men yeah. were dying too. And for a little while, I wanted that back and I dated like a maniac. And what was happening again and again and again was the behavior was becoming, I don't know, more and more toxic because my desperation was increasing. And I'm lucky that I, after a few conversations with both my mother and some friends, I sort of like stopped and thought, what are you doing? You are giving out desperation and you're you're getting what comes back to you in that like yeah men who treat women they date not very well yes that's their responsibility but you know at a point you have to also be like the common denominator as me so for me I am interested in what love means and what we invest all of us in romantic love particularly women and particularly what happens if love isn't supposed to save you from yourself or from your circumstances and in my case it's maybe not there to satisfy these heteronormative ideas of marriage and children Mm. what's it for and uh (laughs) is it okay to rely on it how much is too much reliance where does love come you know all of these things you know I I confessed in a in a therapy session not that long ago and this was before maybe the success of the book but I still was like I don't care how many books I sell you know on some level whether it becomes a Sunday Times bestseller whatever in my career I feel like I've failed in as a woman and in my transition without a boyfriend and that was that was after many many sessions of getting to that point where I could admit that yeah but it was very freeing like so many things when you admit what you actually feel whether it's whether it's wet you know the feminism leaving my body but um (laughs) but I'm fascinated by about what you know there are so many especially successful women you know um who have who have said that In the book, you do case studies, which, I mean, I could talk to you about them for about a week. I was so interested in in the people that you went to see and speak to. In one of the case studies, you meet a a girl called Alex and her parents. You and Alex are only one generation apart, and you kind of have this revelation upon leaving Alex and her parents about, you know, how much things have changed within one generation. And I wanted to kind of end with that, you know, kind of with with this feeling of that things, not saying it's all going to be fucking rosy, but for trans people, it is changing and and how it is and how you've noticed that and use Alex as a kind of template for that. Yeah, well, this girl who at the time I interviewed her for the book, I think was about eight or nine years old. Yeah. Yeah, she's she was, yeah, as I say in the book, one generation down from me and you know, she was a particular case where her parents had got the right information at the right time and supported her. And obviously that isn't necessarily the case for all trans young people now. But what I, yeah, recognised is that despite the challenges ahead of her, the difference between her and I is she was moving into a world where hostility against trans people hasn't necessarily vanished. But there is at least, 
acceptance that trans people exist and more and more of us around yeah more and more I guess light in the darkness and I think that's the key difference um that's changed is that we've talked a lot in this podcast about shame you know when we say trans pride gay pride literally why did they call it pride in the 70s it's because the opposite of pride is shame shame is so toxic shame is so destructive and useless and pointless and lgbt people and trans young people can be given so much of it so young so unnecessarily and it doesn't need to be that way and i think what i saw with that child on that day that i met her and left her family home was a possibility of seeing a time where we do not have to hand people that shame. Yeah. Because if you don't give it to them in the first place, I think whatever life throws at you, I think you have a good stab at, at dealing with it. But when you burden someone that young with that, it's, I don't know, it's just giving them something that they're going to have. You're going to have to, if you're going to lead a happy, healthy life, trust me, <laughs> in your 30s, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to go back and do all that to work do the eventually work. anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, for me, it's it was just a glimpse into a possibility. Like, look, it doesn't have to be this way. And, yeah. it, and, and we need to keep that hope because right now with the government we have, yeah. with the vicious, vicious anti-trans campaigning in this country, you know, mm. there are people right now campaigning for... Children should not be taught about gender identity or trans people in schools. That is a talking point in this country. And we have a government potentially sympathetic to that. Mm. And that is Section 28 repeated. And so, yeah, I guess for anyone listening to this, I'm just very keen that we think about it like that. Do we want to hand children shame? Or do we want to hand them the tools from which they can build a happy life? And for me, it's that simple. Champlain, thank you so much for being on Changes today. I'm so thankful to Sean for coming on Changes and talking us through what were some really traumatic and kind of naughty periods in her life. She's so talented as a writer and I would urge you to buy and read her book, The Transgender Issue, An Argument for Justice. Um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I learned so much from it. It's really eye-opening and enlightening and informative. As always, let us know what you thought of Sean. Get onto my Instagram, Annie McManus, and give me your comments. It's always so good to hear from you. If you like this episode, go back and listen to Sean's friend, Travis Alabanza, who was equally incredible at speaking about their experiences of kind of growing into their identity and spoke really wisely about just the concept of pretending to be someone you're not and how we're all at it deep down from the man in the suit on the tube to you know the school mom at the gate there's a whole element of performative aspects in so much of our culture they kind of paralleled that with drag queen culture and it was it was just one of those jaw-dropping oh of course moments uh it's well worth a listen Okay, tell your friends and family to subscribe to the new season. And if you missed them, just FYI, we kicked off this season with Joanne McNally, the Irish comedian and co-host of the podcast, My Therapist Goes to Me. Then we had Robbie Williams and Professor Brian Cox last week. It's been a wonderful first month. And in case you are hard of hearing or if you know of anyone who'd rather consume this podcast in written form, we put a transcript of each episode on my website. There's a link in the show notes for that too. We are back next Monday with none other than pop icon 
Sam Smith. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Take really good care and we'll see you next week. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.